Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with a couple of representatives for the Columbus Chaos women's semi-pro football team. They're making their debut Saturday night. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Clay Gordon takes a look at Governor Mike DeWine's State of the State address delivered last month. And he'll have the second half of Tracy Townsend's interview with former Ohio Department of Health Director Dr. Amy Acton. And in about 40 minutes, I'll wrap up the hour talking with Michaela Deming, Policy Director and Staff Attorney for the Ohio Domestic Violence Network. First up on Columbus Perspective... Chelsea Johnson and Desiree Cox. Chelsea is the owner who we, by the way, will call CJ from here on out. (laughs) And Desiree is marketing director for the Columbus Chaos, members of the Women's Football Alliance. How are you? Wonderful, Dave. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. You are uh, CJ, the owner. Tell us uh, a little bit about the Columbus Chaos. The Columbus Chaos is a women's semi-professional Full tackle football team, um, also members of the WSA or the Women's Football Alliance, new members in 2022. Very excited about the upcoming season. And you have your first game coming up actually on Saturday, April 9th. Uh, tell us about this game. Oh man, it's going to be an incredible game. Um, not only just for football fans and, and, and lovers of the sport, but for the community as a whole here in Columbus. So we'll kick off at Whitehall Yearling High School right here inside 270 inside Columbus or uh, in the city of Columbus with a Division One game right off the top. Uh, St. Louis Slam is going to – they're, they're a, a pretty solid team. And for that to be our first opponent, it's going to be a, a heck of a game day opener. But it'll be a great, a great time for the community to see what we put together. Okay, that's 7 p.m. at uh, Whitehall Yearling uh, against the St. Louis Slam. I love the names of these teams. Some of the, some of the other ones, the Derby City Dynamite from uh, Louisville. Is that right? Yes, sir. They're out of Louisville, Kentucky. Also, longtime members of the WSA. And the Detroit Venom, the Pittsburgh Passion, and uh, also the Baltimore Nighthawks are on your schedule. And the Columbus Chaos, from what I understand, has roots from a different team before that, right? Absolutely. So um, the story of women's football here in Columbus actually reaches back uh, into the, I would say, early 70s, um, starting with the Columbus Pace Setters. But, I mean, since then, uh, the majority of the team has come together from uh, the formerly known Columbus Comets and myself, as a member, and the, uh, our, my other co-owner, Stacey Apula, another former comment, are looking to continue the story of Columbus women's football right here in the heart of Ohio. Give us a little bit of a profile of the players. Uh, what is it about them? I mean, they're obviously they have passion for football. How does that develop, and how did the league form? Uh, what a great question, because, I mean, try to say this the right way, Columbus will be wowed by these women, not just their passion for the sport, but their their need to come together. I mean, I think football lovers understand exactly what transformation happens, what transformation takes place in a player that's committed to a team sport like football. And when you see these women and you find out who they are outside of football, you're going to be completely committed to this team. They're incredible women, and to see them come together like this in the sport of football is something that Columbus has really seen at this level yet. We're excited to bring that April 9th. Marketing Director Desiree Cox, jump in here. Yeah, and if I could just kind of 
sprinkle a little something on to add to that too, uh, CJ. So just kind of speaking to the profile of our team and our players, these are women from all walks of life. So, I mean, these are, these are members of our community, members of other communities who have actually traveled and relocated here to Columbus to play professional women's football. So we've got, we've got veterans, we've got mothers, we've got business owners, just all, all different variations of, of people and members of our community. And the thing that drives them all the most, just connecting with them, is they're so driven to pave the way for the future, young, young girls, to have the chance to play professional football as well. Absolutely. That's why we have such a strong following from all the former Columbus women's football teams of the past. And to continue the story. It sounds like it's uh, it's serious business, too, because when I see that it's full tackle football, I'm imagining that it's uniforms similar that you're going to find with any other team and similar rules then, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the WFA uh, has their own bylaws and rules, very similar to NCAA. You'll find that... Uh, that we're playing the sport at a very, very similar, if not familiar level. How did the recruitment of players go? How many do you have on the team? Are you fully staffed? Uh, tell us about some of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, we will be coming into this season uh, with a 38-piece roster. Uh, we're very excited to return with a full roster. Uh, we do have a fully realized staff. We have an incredible head coach in Keith Thomas, who will be joining us from Detroit, Michigan. We're very excited to have him with us. He's very seasoned in this sport and in this industry, a great leader, and our, our, our players very much respect uh, what's being put together. Desiree, tell us a little bit about game night. Uh, set the tone for the atmosphere and what fans can expect if they go. Yeah, so opening game day on April 9th being our premier game as the chaos um, we're looking to have this as a community theme night. We're going to have alumni from the Comets. We're going to have people that have been longtime fans of women's football for decades. We're going to have brand new fans. We're going to have the families of the players. We have people traveling from out of state to come. It's going to be exuberant. It's going to be vibrant. There's going to be lots of fun giveaways. And, you know, we're, we're hoping that Everyone can come out, bring a friend, bring bring a child, bring a coworker, anybody, and just really dive into the world of women's football here in Columbus. It's, it's going to be an exciting time. That's again on April 9th, Saturday night at 7 p.m. at Whitehall Yearling High School. And the following Saturday on the 16th, then, you've got a fundraiser, right, Desiree? That's correct. We are partnering with the Chipotle in Whitehall on Town & Country on East Broad Street. So we'll be hosting a fundraiser there between 4 to 8 p.m. If anyone wants to help support the team, they can walk in, um, tell them they're there for the Chaos Fundraiser, and a portion of their order will go towards the team. We'll have plenty of merch um, at our merch booth at kickoff. Please come out to the games. We have some available on our website right now at ColumbusChaos.com. CJ, you were on the comments. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, Yes. So I played for the comments for 10 seasons. I am a three-time WFA All-American left tackle for the Columbus Comets, and um, after I retired in 2017, I became a coach for the Comets. Um, I had the honor to coach um, under Hank Patterson and um, really continue the story of women's football here in Columbus. And some things, you know, we had challenges, much like other teams during um, the pandemic, and some things were really showing signs of 
not coming back together and many of our history, the, the story of women's football is so so powerful and so impactful that people need to know this, that myself and a few others didn't want to see it slip away from this city and much less, you know, um, this industry. So we brought the team back. I mean, we rebranded, we came back stronger and powerful, um, and we're looking to debut and have an outstanding 2022 season in the WFA. Take this thing all the way to the championship if possible. In Canton, Ohio, that would be in, I believe, July. That's great. And left tackle. Ten years at left tackle. You've got to be serious about the game to do that. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. That's outstanding. I love every minute of it. And Desiree, how did you get involved? So I actually came into contact with CJ this past fall, just kind of through the grapevine. And I, I for one, am very new to women's professional football, but I met her, I met some of these players, I met the coaches, and I met all of the other admin staff who I could just tell were extremely passionate about what they were doing and what what they were trying to make happen. And uh, I was just moved by the mission statement because we're, we're at the precipice in our society of change when it comes to all women's sports in general. So, you know, there's, there's a huge push for gender equality, um, equality in pay in women's professional sports. And when I became connected to CJ and I realized that I could play a part of that shift in not only our own home city of Columbus, but in the United States as a whole, I was like, I, I have to get on board with this. I, I, I can't just let I just I can't just let this opportunity slip by me because it's just it's amazing and spending more and more time with the players too it it really reminds you why a mission like ours is so important especially as they're bringing their children to practice you're spending time with these little girls and you, you see them throwing footballs back and forth and getting excited because mommy is a pro athlete it's just I I can't put it into words. CJ, talk a little bit about uh, the empowerment of women through this and how it changes their lives outside of football. Man, I'm glad you asked. Um, The opportunities are vast. I I tell my players all the time, I tell my coaching staff all the time to stay engaged with this sport. To be on the pulse of women's football is to be on the pulse of something that's getting ready to change a lot of lives because of how much opportunity exists in this space. So there's just growth outside of players. There's growth outside of coaching. Um, there's so much that you can. Gr- there's so many directions you can grow in in your community being involved in this industry. And I try to make those outlets available to all our players, all our staff. You know, utilizing our reach to the community to make these things completely uh, visible. The opportunities visible there are, are outside of just playing the sport of football. And Desiree, these players, when they show an interest in, in becoming a player, when these women show an interest in becoming a player, what is it in their background? Are they physically active in other sports and they're just general athletes? Or what is the connection that makes them even think that they would want to do this? I'm really happy you asked because that's, that's really one of the beautiful things about our league and what we do. So there's, there's a very good mix of players who come from an athletic background. So, you know, you've got your fair share of players who have been lifelong athletes through middle school, high school, college. Maybe they played in some intramural sports um, as an adult until they came across us. And then you've also got your women who have never picked up a football a day in their life. Hmm. 
And that just kind of speaks to the fact that, you know, we're inclusive of anyone and everyone. You know, just because you've you've never picked up a football before, it doesn't mean that you can't learn. So all they really need to do is express the interest and have the right attitude and mindset. And we welcome everyone with open arms. That's great. Talking with CJ, uh, one of the owners of the Columbus Chaos, as well as Desiree Cox, who is the marketing director. And again, this game is coming up, the opening game on April 9th against the St. Louis Slam. And uh, Desiree, give us uh, some particulars about where folks can get tickets and where the game is and all that. Yeah, so, I mean, first and foremost, we've got players out and about in the community who are selling tickets themselves. Um, So if you happen to be in connection with any players on the team, definitely reach out to them and see if they can hook you up. And for anybody else that's wondering, uh, you can go straight to www.columbuschaos.com. You can order tickets from our website, or you can take it a step further and order a season season pass, which comes custom with your name on it and hand-delivered from one of our team members. Um, I just want to outline for a moment that each, each ticket to each game is $15 a piece. We have three home games here at Whitehall Yearling Stadium, but if you're interested and want to pick up a season pass, we're selling those for $35 a piece, so that's the better route. So with that, visit our website, uh, reach out to one of our players, contact us on any of our social media pages. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and we hope to see everybody there. Okay, great. CJ, anything else you'd like to add to wrap up here? Yes. If you don't know, definitely get to, I want to just give a quick shout out to our few community sponsors, the Crazy Mule uh, Pub and Grill, um, Slammers Pizza Kitchen and Bar, and Wayne Webb Columbus Bull. If you know any of those locations, all three of those locations will be watch party locations. If you can't make it out to the game, definitely go view the game at one of those locations. And thank you, thank you, thank you for your support in advance. All right, outstanding. Chelsea Johnson, or CJ, the owner of the Columbus Chaos, and also Desiree Cox, marketing director. Find out more at columbuschaos.com. Good luck on the opening game and uh, and for the season, and thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you, Dave. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com, and thanks for listening. Crispy. Faded. Lit. Baked. Toasty, stoned, blazed, zooted. When you're high, there are a lot of ways to say it. But there's only one thing you need to remember. Driving under the influence of marijuana is illegal everywhere. If you feel different, you drive different. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. What is dedication? The thing that drives me every day as a dad is Dariana. We call him uh, Day Day for short. Every day he's hungry for something, whether it's attention, affection, knowledge. And there's this huge responsibility in making sure that when he's no longer under my wing, that he's a good person. 
I think the advice I would give is you don't need to know all the answers. The craziest thing was believing that your dad knew everything. So as a dad, you felt like you had to know everything. You had to get everything right. It's okay to make mistakes. As long as it's coming from love, then, you know, it kind of starts to work itself out. I want him to be able to sit back one day and go, we worked together, we did a good job. That's dedication. Find out more at fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10TV, here's Clay Gordon from 10TV's Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. The state of our amazing state is strong. For the first time in years, the state of the state addressed returned. The three big takeaways and the three things the governor did not address. And hear more of our exclusive one-on-one interview with Dr. Amy Acton. She'll reflect on her place in history. And thanks for joining us on Face the State. I'm Clay Gordon in for Tracy Townsend this week. Leaders from across the state came together for the first time in three years. They once again gathered in the state house for the governor's state of the state. Governor Mike DeWine said his goal was to celebrate the wins and shine a light on the work that still needs to be done. TV's Brittany Bailey has his message to Ohioans. Governor DeWine delivered his first state of the state address since before the pandemic. As he faces re-election, his message was this. Ohio is strong and ready to make some noise. The state of our amazing state is strong. With that kickoff, Governor Mike DeWine spent roughly the next hour touting what Ohio has done to get through the pandemic and move the state into the future. And as with any state of the state, the governor painted a rosy picture of his accomplishments, but also took time to honor those on the COVID front lines. We owe such a debt to our health care workers, our nurses, our doctors, our first responders, frontline workers, grocery store clerks, restaurant workers, local health department personnel, our teachers, all educators. The governor touted investments for expectant parents, the intel development, and funding for law enforcement. But he admitted the state still has a long way to go when it comes to mental health resources. Friends, Ohio has just taken off. And all of us in this chamber are building the environment, the climate in this state, where every Ohioan can have a better life, and where Ohio children can dream, and those dreams can really, really come true. But our work is not done. In many ways, our work is just beginning. Some of the things we did not hear from the governor were any mentions of the House Bill 6 controversy, the recent gun legislation he signed into law, and the current redistricting fiasco. Reporting at the State House, Brittany Bailey, 10TV News. The Democrats did not shy away from the redistricting issue when responding to the state of the state. Representative Allison Russo. Fair districts mean better representation, which means better, more responsive government by and for the people. Republicans continue 
to blatantly disregard these cries by passing unconstitutional state and congressional maps. Russo also said her party and the American Rescue Plan are the reasons Ohio is turning a corner from the pandemic. And many of the initiatives that were mentioned by the governor today, such as efforts to improve education, expand access to child care and support law enforcement, were only made possible because of the $10.93 billion that Ohio state and local governments received from ARPA funding from Democrats in Congress and President Biden. To listen to DeWine's full State of the State address, go to 10TV.com or click on the story on the 10TV mobile app. This week, the Democrats hoping to take DeWine's seat debate in Wilberforce. There will not be a Republican debate because DeWine turned down the invitation. That caused Jim Renacci to say he didn't want to debate either. We talked with OSU political science professor Herb Asher about what this means for the governor primary. Governor DeWine basically, you know, is ahead. And he basically made, I think, or his advisors made the decision that he doesn't need to debate, that he, in fact, uh, in fact, the debate would have too many risks for him. And so, therefore, he chose not to. And, you know, some people criticized him. The debate commission criticized him. But in this case, there's no great penalty in not participating. His opponent maybe could have charged him, you know, with running away from debate. But his opponent then said, I'm not going to, his major opponent, I'm not going to participate. So uh, debates get caught up in not just uh, sort of the good government perspective, let's say that the League of Women Voters would bring to it, but the campaigns, the candidates, and the campaign strategists and managers. So uh, I don't think it's going to be a great loss. One local lawmaker is trying to make it easier for parents to run for office. State Representative Latina Humphrey introduced a bill to allow candidates to use campaign funds to pay for child care. Her own experience inspired this idea. It's personal to me, right? You know, I am a single mom to a nine-year-old little boy, um, and I got involved in, in what you would call, you know, the land of politics or whatever it is, um, about six 2016 is what I'll say. Um, and, you know, all I had was the support of my son's father's mother. Um, and that was really hard, you know, having to come out of pocket and things like that. And just thinking how much more I really could have supported her as she supported me in my journey. If I had, you know, been running for office even now in this position, you know, to be able to pay you know, pay her with campaign funds. And this is going to allow more women uh, to be able to run for office, more people just in general, working class people, to be able to run for office. Now, Pass Ohio would join 26 other states that have approved the use of campaign funds for child care. The bill was referred to the Government Oversight Committee. And still to come, another investment into the Buckeye State, how Honda plans to use a massive wind tunnel. Plus, shining a spotlight on veterans in need. The push a local widow is making in hopes of sparking a national change. Matthew. Huh? Oh, sorry. It's okay. I just need you to listen to me. I know that a lot of times, Mom, it might not seem like I'm listening to you, but I am. I hear you. And what you say really does matter to me. I mean, let's be honest. No kid likes rules, but I get why we have them. I hear you, and I know it's because you care. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, 
Want a drink? No, thanks. I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thanks, Mom, for never giving up and always being my biggest fan. Thank you for letting me know what you expect so I can try to meet your expectations. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Clay Gordon, courtesy of 10TV. A moment of history on the high court. Hearings took place for Ketanji Brown Jackson. She was nominated as the first black woman on the U.S. Supreme Court. And Ohio Congresswoman Joyce Beatty spoke in support of her nomination. If confirmed, she would shatter a glass ceiling that many Americans, including those who fought and died for voting rights, a more perfect union, and a just America, believe that they would never live to see it broken. As a black woman myself, I urge this body to remember that Judge Jackson's confirmation vote must not be isolated to her gender or to her race. Instead, I urge you to closely examine her credentials and her sterling judicial record. She is grounded in family values, love of God and country and academic excellence. In my recent conversation with her, it became immediately clear why President Biden chose her. Her life experience, education and reverence for the rule of law clearly demonstrate that she has been preparing for this moment her entire life. Congresswoman Beatty is chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. Honda unveiled a new $124 million state-of-the-art facility. The HALO facilities in East Liberty will improve testing capabilities for Honda and Acura vehicles with a wind tunnel. It generates speed of more than 190 miles per hour. Lieutenant Governor John Houston says this investment will increase STEM talent and innovation. I mentioned the fact that our educational institutions and our business community uh, are aligned in generating more and more STEM talent so that we can have the scientists, the engineers, the computer technicians, in this case the aerospace engineers, working on cutting-edge innovation. This facility is Honda's latest investment in Ohio, now totaling $14 billion. There's a push to expand the entertainment business in Ohio. State Representative Laura Lanise of Grove City introduced a bill to create new incentives for gaming, animation, and motion picture production companies to relocate here to the Buckeye State. She says too many college graduates are leaving Ohio because this opportunity they need are not here. My goal is to try to both build the industry, but also to attract, to keep those students who are getting the degrees that we are funding here and to try to keep them in Ohio so that they can um, raise their families here and pretty much um, have the Ohio dream. Under the bill, these companies would get a 35 percent tax credit, which would be capped at $2 million in the first year. There's a push to expand health care eligibility for veterans exposed to burn pits. Veterans across the country say more and more soldiers are suffering from cancer and other respiratory illnesses. They say it comes from waste and trash burned at the camps in Iraq. Senator Sherrod Brown is behind a bill to make it easier for veterans to get treatment. We need to move forward on all of this quickly because these the veterans need they, they need to be able to go to the VA, diagnose these at an early stage. It will say it will save the lives of many of them. 
A local woman is fighting for that bill in honor of her late husband. 10TV's Kiana Deitches spoke with families dealing with the aftermath of burn pits. This is a war that followed him home. After a one-year deployment in Iraq, Sergeant First Class Heath Robinson was diagnosed with lung cancer. He eventually lost his voice and ended up with a paralyzed vocal cord. He died at 39, leaving behind his wife and daughter who watched him fight the battle head on. She's gone into the bathroom and found her daddy on the bathroom floor, barely able to breathe, um, gushing nosebleeds that honestly would make our bathroom look like a crime scene. Robinson says her husband's illness came from his exposure to chemicals from trash burned at his camp in Iraq. We don't burn trash in the United States for a reason. We know why we don't burn trash, but why did they do this and poison a ton of our soldiers and put their lives on the line over in Iraq? He died as they fought to get benefits to treat his conditions. He's just one of thousands of servicemen and women who are suffering. With five different lung conditions, Andrew Nightsling is one of them. The constrictive bronchiolitis obliterans, which is a life-shortening, irreversible incurable lung disease. A new bill heads to the Senate to make sure veterans with conditions like cancer and emphysema won't have to prove their illnesses were the result of their service. Nightsling fears it may be too late. I fear that I won't be alive when they finally start owning up to all these toxic exposures. Again, I'd just with that story. If the bill gets through the Senate, it would amount to more than $300 billion over the next decade. We are highlighting two Central Ohio women who are making a difference. First, hear from Dr. Amy Acton in our exclusive 10TV interview. The former Ohio Department of Health director talks about what's next. And hear from a woman who plays a key role in making sure other women's business dreams come true. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. There's a child in Kenya, or Sierra Leone, or India, or Bolivia, who you could connect with. And through Child Fund, it's possible. We may be thousands of miles apart, but we can still connect with each other. And when we do, we make things better. We connect children all around the world with what they need to grow up healthy, educated, and safe. That's what Child Fund is about. Together, we co-create, support, and sustain connections that lead to greater well-being for millions of children who live in poverty worldwide. And their families, and their communities, and their countries, and you. Join us. Together, we can make the world a better place. Two small worlds at a time. His and yours. Visit childfund.org to learn more. People do some pretty cool things in their 40s and 50s. Why should saving for retirement be any different? I mean, they go back to college. Learn new instruments. Start skateboarding. Whoa! Okay, maybe that one's not for everybody, but saving for retirement is. With aceyourretirement.org, you can get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. Just have a three-minute chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach from AARP. You'll get personalized recommendations based on your input that are easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. 
Now they move, Dad. Thanks, sweetie. So wherever you are in your retirement savings journey, head to aceyourretirement.org and start chatting with Avo today. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Clay Gordon, courtesy of 10TV. She played a big role in Ohio's early response to the COVID-19 pandemic. She gained national attention and even an online fan club. Now, former director of the Ohio Department of Health is opening up about her part in it all. 10TV's Tracy Townsend recently sat down for an exclusive one-on-one interview with Dr. Amy Acton. What do you see as your place in history? Well, you know, (laughs) that's a great question. It was the honor of a lifetime to hold that space for Hyones. It was certainly unintended. Um, I'm a very ordinary person who found themselves in an extraordinary moment in time. There is a Kenyan professor that said that he studied about seven weeks of pandemic press conferences and said that we created a ritualized holding space all by accident. You know, we came out one day and said, we're going to tell you what we know as we know it. And then we said, 2 p.m., who's watching the Ohio News Network, right? And, you know, we're just going to come so that the media could know all at one time. It just seemed more expedient. Mm -hmm. But then all of a sudden we were sitting with the media and they had parents and they had kids at home and we were all going through the same thing. And we started talking to Ohioans. And I think the space we created... I was not scripted. That really speaks to the leadership that they did that. We talked straight to Ohioans. It wasn't through the lens of politics. Um, we, we had something that became something we all had. And to be a part of that and to see that feeling of Ohioans, all ships rising and lifting together, was the honor of a lifetime. And I, I was... I said I was the tip of the iceberg. There were 1,100 people behind me, a bunch of cabinet directors, eventually every school superintendent and board member and parent and nurse and everyone. It was all of us. Um, and to be with, uh, to be in that moment with everyone was just a privilege. Any ideas what's next for you? <laughs> oh, I always thought when I went into this job that I would just, I'm going, I'm really scared. I didn't know a governor. I'm going to go serve, and I hope to just go back to my life and be, you know, get back to my normal life. Mm-hmm. And I, I've I've reflected a lot, and you know, I have had opportunities to do a lot of different things. But I realize, like, I really do just want my life back, <laughs> and I I want to be in Ohio. I'm once you feel the weight of the responsibility of Ohioans, you fall in love, mm-hmm. and you don't want to stop and and you don't let that go lightly if that makes sense but I'm trying to figure out the ways that I uniquely who I am can give back um and so I I think you'll see soon you'll see me doing things (laughs) that I hope feel like me um I let my heart kind of move me I've never been a very smart career person (laughs) and um but you know I'm very moved by some things I'm seeing and I want to be part of healing and hope so I want to be part of helping us emerge and pull together and you could listen to all of Tracy's interview just look for it on the 10 tv mobile app
And at least one Central Ohio business leader is proof women's history happens every single day. Ina Kinney is the CEO of Economic and Community Development Institute, ECDI, which is a micro-lender to minority-owned businesses in our state. ECDI works with entrepreneurs, small business owners in all 88 of Ohio's counties. It's based in Columbus, has offices in Cleveland, Cincinnati, Akron, Canton, Toledo, and Portsmouth. It was recently listed by federal, the federal government as the largest U.S. micro-lender by volume of business. Kenny told 10TV's Tracy Townsend when she started the company in 2004, it was to give access to people who would otherwise be shut out of entrepreneurial opportunities. My motivation is coming from another country and seeing how many great resources the United States has. However, being able to reach out to minorities, to women, to low-income individuals is not something that most entities or nonprofits do. That's not part of the, you know, most nonprofits are social service, whereas we're economic development engine. Women are one of the um, highest demographics nationally to start businesses. But when you look at the success rate of women-owned businesses, they fail more often than men. Then mm-hmm. you have to ask why. And the reason is because women are very entrepreneurial. However, they don't have the network around them. They don't have access to capital like men do. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was for ECDI it was very important to address that need. ECDI has distributed more than $135 million in loans and created 13,200 jobs. Last year, 44 million of those dollars were through PPP loans. Nearly all businesses receiving PPP funds were either African-American-owned, women-owned, had low to moderate income, or were immigrants or refugees. Well, thank you for sharing your Sunday morning with us today. We'll see you right back here next week for Face the State. That's again Clay Gordon, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. This next segment originally aired in October of last year. It's with Michaela Deming. She is the policy director and staff attorney for the Ohio Domestic Violence Network. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you, and thank you so much for having me. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what the Ohio Domestic Violence Network is. So the Ohio Domestic Violence Network is the federally recognized state coalition for domestic violence. And what we do is we we support and provide training and technical assistance to all of the domestic violence programs in the state of Ohio. So we have 75 member programs. So you don't actually run shelters or anything, but do you monitor them or what? So the shelters are our member programs, and we have some non-shelter-based member programs, um, and they, they do the direct services. We do have some direct services for housing program. We have a legal program um, at the statewide level. But we really provide support, technical assistance, training to all of those direct-serving programs around the state. And your website has a wealth of information for survivors and ways for them to basically save themselves and turn their lives around. Yes, we have resources. So if you're not sure where the local programs are available to you, a lot of domestic violence survivors are fleeing violence and going to a place they're not familiar with. We have resources on our website. You can now direct chat with our staff during um, regular business hours. You can also call in to our um, 
our um, 1-800 number, or you can go onto our website and you'll get connected with your local program or the local program in the area that you're going to. And what is the website? The website is www.odvn.org. Okay. And uh, now you were in the news, you and the uh, organization in the news, because of uh, a report that you put out talking about an increase in domestic violence in Ohio. Yes. Every year in October, we release our domestic violence fatality data for the prior year. And our year for the fatality data runs July 1 through June 30th. Um, And so we put out, we released that report for this prior year on October 5th. You show a marked increase in fatalities from domestic violence. Yes. Unfortunately, we see again this year that we had a 20% increase over last year's total number of fatalities and a 62% increase over two years ago. So we're we're on an upward swing here for domestic violence-related fatalities here in the state of Ohio. So from July of last year through June of this year, there were 131 across the state. I guess uh, circumstances can kind of run the gamut in in what happens in these cases, right? Absolutely. We've seen cases where there was a, you know, a dating partner um, killing their their dating partner. Um, We see some cases where there is a violent altercation, a domestic violence situation, Law enforcement responds, and law enforcement kills the perpetrator. Um, We saw entire families being annihilated this last year. Um, So lots of different situations. But when we review the data, we really limit this. These 131 fatalities are just domestic violence, intimate partner violence-related cases. And what about children as victims uh, in this way? Unfortunately, this year we had the highest number of youth killed that we have ever seen in our reporting. We had 15 people under the age of 18 who were killed in these fatalities. It's 15 children, and, and this is the number who were killed, and we know that 25% of Ohio's youth are experiencing domestic violence in, before they turn 18. So these are the worst of the incidents, right, because obviously they resulted in fatalities, but a lot of Ohio's youth are being exposed to domestic violence and being dramatically impacted by it um, every year in Ohio. Talking with Michaela Deming, she's the policy director and staff attorney for the Ohio Domestic Violence Network. So what sense do you have of the pandemic's role in this, in, in home life and that sort of thing? Yeah, so, you know, Everyone's asking, right? Everyone wants to know what part of this is COVID, and it's really hard to say. Um, So I'll tell you that the research that we have following natural disasters and following economic downturns is that in both instances, we see a rise in um, violence against women. That's historically speaking. We don't obviously have, you know, retrospective research on this time period right now because we're still in it. But there are a number of other things that we can look at that are on the rise during this COVID pandemic that we also know contribute to lethality. So they are lethality factors. These things, if they exist in a domestic violence relationship, um, mean that it is more likely that that person might end up um, a a fatality. And so we have things like um, increased mental health issues. We have increases in addiction. Uh, we have increases in folks losing their jobs. We have an increase in people who are 
um, maybe not getting picked up by law enforcement or, or who are being released or not um, uh, not going to jail during this time period for all of the COVID protocols. You put all of those things together along with decreased access to services perhaps or perceived decreased access to services and, and we've got a lot of increased lethality factors onto relationships that were likely already violent. I remember talking to the executive director of your agency, Mary O'Doherty, fairly early during the pandemic. And at that point, numbers seemed to be going down, or at least reports of it. But it was during the lockdown and shortly after, and there was just a almost a sense of grimness about it because everybody knew that that wasn't in reality what was happening. Yeah, we saw a period um, in a lot of our programs during the shutdown of about, you know, that was about four to six weeks or so um, worth of time where it was incredibly difficult, even more difficult than normal for a domestic violence victim to leave their situation and get access to resources, right? There was a decreased access to the court system, decreased access to being able to leave the house, even call somebody for help. So we saw a little bit of a decrease. At the end of the year, though, by the time we looked at all of the data together, most of our programs saw an increase, an increase in the number of calls. And so even with those four to six weeks where the calls were down, it was more than made up with for by the end of the year with increased calls, increased levels of of violence and injury and strangulation that were being seen. Um, in the shelters um, and in the programs, by the time folks were able to get to help, um, they had experienced more violence. So all of all of that together, we ended up with with a pretty dramatic increase in the amount of services requested and needed during uh, during the past year. And the number of requests, people who are in need of shelter, that's overwhelming. There's not enough in the state to handle that. Is that correct? Yeah, so we do a, a, a census every year. Um, we, we pick a, a day in September where we run all of our, our statistics. And in a single day here in Ohio, 252 requests were unfilled. Wow. Not all of those are for shelter beds. They might have been for shelter beds. They might have been for somebody to help with a protection order or a legal service or for long-term housing or child care so that they could get to an appointment, right? Um, so 252 unmet needs for survivors in a single day here in Ohio. Wow. And how many are met per day? Do you have any idea on that? Um, yeah, we serve roughly um, 2,600 a day. We served a total of 111,000 people last year. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And from what I understand, federal funding for shelters is being reduced. Is that right? Yeah, so we have been on a, on a, I keep saying the word dramatic, and I feel like I'm, I'm understating this. We lost um, about 40% of our funding um, from our main funding source, the Violence, uh, Victims of Crime Act funding, for, that's the federal source. We've been losing about 30 to 40% of that money per year for the last three or four years. So just to give you a, a number on that, last year, so in October of 2020, our programs lost $7.7 million in funding just to domestic violence programs. And then in October of 2021, 
those programs saw another 40% decrease in their main funding source, that VOCA funding. So we are down tens of, of millions of dollars worth of service money to keep our doors open to make sure that we're able to serve all the people who need services uh, right now. And, and that is, that's not a, a problem unique to Ohio, um, but it's definitely affecting all of our programs. It's a real complication, though, because right now cities, some cities are awash in federal money since the pandemic. I mean, they're they're building recreational facilities and doing all this kind of odd stuff that they never thought they would have money for. And they're spending the money to do that while this is going on. Yeah. And I will say that the American Rescue Plan Act specifically mentions in its um, um, in its information that the funding can be used by these cities and these counties and townships, that money can be used for domestic violence uh, survivor services. So instead of, or perhaps in addition to building those recreational facilities, they could absolutely be spending money to increase the services available for domestic violence survivors in their communities. Talking with Michaela Deming, she's policy director and staff attorney for the Ohio Domestic Violence Network. What's happening on the policy front with state lawmakers and domestic violence? Yeah, so we've got a number of things. I've got a little bit of good news on this front. We were able to get in this um, biennium uh, budget an increase um, for our state funding. So last annual budget, um, we were allocated a million dollars a year for domestic violence programs. Uh, that was the first time ever in Ohio that we had a state line item funding for domestic violence. That amounted to about $12,000 per program. So incredibly grateful for the money. $12,000 also doesn't go very far for each shelter in each program. We were very fortunate to get our, our state lawmakers to authorize an increase, and we were able to get $7.5 million in the budget over two years. So not quite as much as what we lost, um, but definitely a significant increase, a significant investment in domestic violence survivor services here in the state. So that's, that's a good point. We do have a number of other bills that are pending um, that we're working on. We've got House Bill 3, Aisha's Law. That would, among other things, it would really address um, the, the issue of strangulation in the state. Um, we are one of the last or the very last states in the country that does not treat strangulation as a felony. We know that there are seconds, literally seconds of difference between life and death when strangulation um, is being used. And yet in Ohio, it's still mostly charged as a misdemeanor offense, as long as you're doing that against your, your intimate partner. If you do that against a stranger, of course, you're likely to get a much higher charge. So we are looking at making strangulation in domestic violence situations a felony, and House Bill 3 would do that. Senate Bill 90 would also do that. Um, So those are two bills that are pending. Another thing that House Bill 3 would do in addition to that would be to um, increase education for law enforcement officers and increase the, um, the linkage between, you know, when law enforcement is on the scene, getting those victims linked with domestic violence programs and services right there. At that, at that moment. So I, I wanted to tie one a, a piece together um, about the, the fatality statistics that we have for this year and some of our policy work. And that comes down to the bail reform bill. That's House Bill 315 and Senate Bill 182. And we saw this year that at least 
six of the violent uh, fatal incidents in our in our research, um, they were folks who were on paper, right? So they they had pending domestic violence related offenses in the court. They were out on pretrial release, and the the fatality still occurred. And the current pending bail bills would actually make sure that every domestic violence misdemeanor offender would have to be released pending trial. So even if a court was able to see how dangerous the situation was, um, they would be unable to hold those offenders, and, and there's no additional safety mechanism for those victims then to, to stay alive, frankly, while that case is, is pending. I think most people are probably familiar with the recent death of Gabby Petito. Uh, the couple uh, who were living in Florida, they were traveling out west with, in a van, and, and they were stopped, I believe it was in Utah, and police, there's a, a video about an hour long of police talking to both of them and trying to determine, for the most part, whether to charge her with domestic violence. And the whole thing is just troubling all the way through it, but you also can have some feelings for the cops who are trying to sort all this out and the difficult decisions that they make in situations like this. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it's law enforcement, it's, it's the police, it's, and, um, and the judges and the probation officers, everyone who's involved in these cases um, absolutely wants to do the right thing, is trying to, to do their best with the information that they have. Um, and yet, we still have really high rates of, of fatalities related to domestic violence. And so I really think it's in looking at reports like the one that we've issued, looking at the, the really rich research that we have about lethality factors that can help us look at situations and have a, a we, it it's not 100%, but we can have a better idea of which cases are, are more dangerous might need more intervention or different intervention. Um, and that's, that is one of the things that House Bill 3 does, would make every law enforcement agency in the state do a lethality screening at the scene of domestic violence incidents so that law enforcement would have a better idea of how dangerous the situation is, as with the victim. Um, and we have existing laws on the books where those lethality factors are supposed to be presented then by the prosecutor to the judge so the judge can make better decisions about pretrial release conditions um, using the, the research that we have about why and how some situations might be more dangerous than others. If there's a call for domestic violence and, and an officer responds to a home, are they required to arrest someone or how do they work that out in Ohio? Yeah, we have a preferred arrest policy in Ohio, so there should be um, an arrest that happens. It does not always, and there's some, you know, really complicated considerations around that. In some instances, both folks are arrested um, because law enforcement is unable to determine the predominant aggressor in the situation. Or, you know, we see situations where some injuries don't appear or aren't external um, until later, and we see that a lot with strangulation. Um, if a victim is being strangled, they are likely to, you know, try and save their life, which might result in scratch marks or, or a bruising on the face or the hands of the person doing the strangulation. And those might be the only injuries that the officer sees on the scene. 
as opposed to seeing the strangulation injuries, which might, again, just be internal, um, even if the person is, is about to die. And so there are some really complicated decisions, I think, as you already mentioned, about what does law enforcement do on the scene when they're getting very different reports of what has happened, and how do they make those safety decisions on the scene. So there is a preferred arrest policy. There is supposed to be one person who goes um, and, and gets booked um, when that uh, incident occurs. Um, but there are reasons that it does not always happen, um, and there are some times when both folks get arrested. And again, those are the, the situations that we are often in. Um, it is very difficult because you're going to get, at all phases in the process, a different version of events. And the, the better training that people have who are trying to make these really complicated decisions, the more likely we are to act end up with decisions that are going to to lead to better safety for the victim. Talking with Michaela Deming, policy director and staff attorney for the Ohio Domestic Violence Network. When the the whole thing came out, uh, the phrase defund the police, the people who were making that point were not, I don't believe, talking about defunding the police, but one of their proposals is to have social agencies and, and experts in the field involved more in police calls and that type of thing, maybe to be among the first responders to a situation like that. Are you an advocate of that? Yeah, so we have seen some success in programs that we have here in Ohio, um, actually. Uh, Cincinnati's got a program going um, specifically, and I know several other places do, where um, domestic violence victim advocates do ride-alongs or come to the scene as soon as it's cleared, of course, for safety, and do some immediate intervention. And we have seen some really great results in decreased uh, fatality and homicide rates when those programs are in place. Now, unfortunately, when we talked about those cuts to funding, those are some of the programs that go when our funding gets cut. Right. Um, so we have seen improvements. We do have some promising practices around how can domestic violence programs and law enforcement combine efforts. Uh, to do better responses on the scene. Um, so I'm hopeful that we'll get some, some statutory changes and, and, frankly, some funding to be able to expand that, those best practices around the state. Talking with Michaela Deming, Policy Director and Staff Attorney for the Ohio Domestic Violence Network. Anything else you'd like to add? I would just like to, to thank you for having me on and, and let folks know that um, even with our funding cuts that we have mentioned, um, our programs have remained open throughout this pandemic, and they continue to remain open. So if, if any of your listeners are experiencing domestic violence, have some red flags in their relationships they'd like to talk through, or friends and family. We take lots of calls from friends and family who are concerned about their loved ones. We take all of those calls and can help with safety planning, resources, um, and, and those are resources in safety planning, regardless of whether somebody actually needs shelter, um, which is only one of the services we provide. So I would encourage you, if you have questions and need any services, to reach out to one of our fabulous programs. And again, you can find them on our website, odvn.org, and you can uh, reach out to our 1-800 number or uh, to any of our programs directly. Okay. Uh, Michaela Deming, thanks so much for your time and the information today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan.
Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.